welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline, although today it's just Monica. And we hope you're having a wonderful day. We're recording this on a beautiful winter day. Well, I guess it's not officially winter yet, but very close. Um, but it feels uh, it's bright and sunny here in Iowa. We, Iowa actually has some pretty beautiful winters when it's not too cold, which it often is, but not today. <laughs> Anyway, our guest today is Alan Mendenhall, and he's the author of A Glooming Piece This Morning, which is his first novel, but his eighth book, I believe, but he'll tell us a little bit more about that. Alan is a lawyer and university administrator in Alabama, and he edited Southern Literary Review for over a decade. And that is all that his bio in the back of the book says. But if you go to his website, boy, do you get a whole lot more. Welcome to Writer's Voices, Alan. Thank you, Monica. It's really a, an honor and a privilege to be here. So you're the Associate Dean and Grady Rosier Professor in the Sorrell College of Business at Troy University. That's correct. It's unusual for someone like me to be in a business school because I never even took a single course in business in college. I'm a lawyer with a PhD in English, so I teach business <laughs> law. I got hired ah. to be an administrator, but there actually are courses for people like me to teach in a business school. So I finagled my way in through the back door, so to speak. <laughs> and you're also the executive director of the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy. Now, that's a mouthful. <laughs> it is a mouthful. I've said it enough times that it rolls off my tongue, but there are uh, there's a lot of uh, alliteration in that. And what and do you do as the executive director of, of uh, a center for political economy? Well, we run a master's in economics program for undergraduate students, and their program is fully funded. So any student who goes to the program pays no tuition, no fees, and uh, we have donors that, that send them through. And then we do educational programming, and that could be for the general public or it could be for uh, just students. And that's part of Troy University also? That's correct. And I assume Troy University is in Alabama. It what, is in Alabama. What town? It's in a town called Troy, but we actually have oh. four campuses in the state. So we have one campus in Troy, one campus in Montgomery, one campus in Phoenix City, and one campus in Dothan. Okay. All right. And satellite sites throughout the world. <laughs> so... Uh, let's talk a little bit about a glooming piece this morning. This is your first published novel, I understand. That's correct. But what's funny is that it's the first book I started working on. So I published, I guess, what is this? this is my eighth book. So I've published seven books between the first one and this one. But I started writing this one before any of the others. I started this in about 2006-ish. And I wrote a short story, but I introduced too many characters and it was too long and, and it just didn't hang together as a short story. So I just set it aside and thought I'll return to this one day and do something with it. But I didn't know what that would be. Then during my 1L year of law school, so my first year of law school, I read a case. I couldn't tell you today what the name of the case was, but I read a case in my criminal law class and a light bulb went on and I thought, ah, there's the story I'm looking for. I can take this short story 
and expand it because I loved the characters I created in the short story, but now I can have the drama revolve around this case that I read. And after I read the case, I never went back again to reread it because I didn't want the actual case to cloud the story that I envisioned in my head. I didn't want there to be any overlap. I sort of (laughs) ran with my own variation of that case. Wow. So when did you actually write the not as the novel you said you started as a short story and then you got this idea from law school which i'm assuming since you are now a professor probably law school was a while ago it was Um, (laughs) it was 2006 when i read that case okay so it you know it took a long time and what i would do is you know i was writing a lot of other books i was writing for publication for tenure purposes and for academic purposes and for cv purposes And I didn't have a lot of time to just sit and work on a novel, which for me and my disciplines, whether it was law or now that I'm in a business school, don't count for anything. If I publish a novel, I get no no academic credit for that. (laughs) So I had to prioritize other forms of writing and work on the novel during Christmas break or if I was on summer vacation. Something about summer vacation – if you go on a vacation over the summer, I don't – I've never actually had a job like most faculty where I get the entire summer off. Mm. But if I were spending a weekend at the beach or something like that, I would be inspired to write. Something about being in that vacation setting made me write a lot. And I would just do a little bit here or there, and then – I went to the Mississippi Book Festival. Gosh, I wish I had a year. It was 2017-ish, maybe 18, possibly 19. And that inspired me to finish the novel. And so sometime in 2019, I went gangbusters on the novel and focused on that and hammered it out. And over the summer, I started giving it to other people to read. And because of the content of the story, I really wanted only female readers So I sent it to um, several friends I had met along the way during my years editing Southern Literary Review, uh, Joy Ross Davis, Johnny Bernhard, uh, Julie Cantrell, Shuley Kaywood, uh, Susan Cushman, and and Bryn McLean. And they all read it, and they gave me feedback. They endorsed the book, gave me blurbs. I made some uh, adjustments, editorial adjustments. In particular, Susan Cushman gave me several suggestions. And then – I submitted it to a publisher, and I didn't want to go the New York City route or find an agent and do all that because, frankly, I just wanted the book to be published. I I was writing this as much for me as for anyone else. I've got other books out there um, that speak for themselves in terms of quality, and uh, I thought, well, I I really wanted to work with the University Press because I thought, well, even if I don't officially or formally – get academic credit for this novel. If it's with a university press, it certainly wouldn't hurt on the CV. There would be some (laughs) credibility that would come with that. So it may not count when it comes to checking boxes, but it could be icing on the cake, so to speak, <laughs> to push it to, to, to push it for some kind of credit. And so it's published by Livingston Press from the University of West Alabama. Now, have That's you published correct. with them before or any of your other I, books with them? I have not, but when I was editor of Southern Literary Review, we would review their books and interview their authors. And Joe Taylor, who is the editor there, would 
always publish high quality works with really neat authors and he would publish unique books things that other publishers probably wouldn't touch because they were literary fiction and today it's harder to sell literary fiction it's a lot easier easier to sell sort of um just basically trash or something you know just something that's uh, something that that just just got mass appeal but doesn't have a lot of uh, uh density to the plot or um difficulty in terms of syntax or rhetoric or um even symbolism and structure and dialogue so he publishes literary fiction which is um different and there is certainly a market for it you know there are people that buy and read Jonathan Franzen or something like that but uh, and somebody like that makes a lot of money but most people are really going to prefer buying something that is uh you know easily read on the beach in a few hours and you can you can read it while drinking a corona light if you wanted to or something like that <laughs> but but Joe Taylor publishes books that make you think ah now a glooming piece this morning is is you know when you describe it, it is literary fiction, and it is, in a sense, dense, but it's also very short, so it's not um, so intimidating. <laughs> it's not intimidating. It's very short. It's actually the shortest book I've written, and it took me the longest to write, so I don't know what that <laughs> says about it, if that says, uh, what that says about me, but you're correct. It is very short. It's set in the 1970s in the fictional town of Andalusia in the fictional Magnolia County. And every time I say Andalusia, here in Alabama, we actually have a city called Andalusia. So whenever I say Andalusia, they all, everyone, everyone says, well, there is an Andalusia. There's a real Andalusia. And I said, well, I, of course there's a, a real Andalusia, but it's not the one that's in my <laughs> novel. There is a place called Andalusia. But in choosing the name Andalusia, I was really seeking to recall Flannery O'Connor, whose farm in Milledgeville, Georgia, is named Andalusia. And of course, Andalusia is the, the the Spanish city, but we Southerners like to pronounce it differently. We we have our own idioms and drawls and ways of saying things, so we we say Andalusia. And of course, the novel is Southern Gothic, and um, Flannery O'Connor wrote in the Southern Gothic genre, and it's really a retelling of of Greek tragedy, and more specifically, the drama between the characters uh, Tommy and Sarah is a retelling of Romeo and Juliet. Ah, I didn't even think of that. <laughs> yeah, the title, the title, A Glooming Piece This Morning, is a phrase directly from Romeo and Juliet. Okay. Now, in Greek tragedy, what were your inspirations? Well, Aeschylus. <laughs> I, 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 there's something about Aeschylus I, I, I like, but... In Greek tragedy and Shakespeare, frankly, the characters are morally ambiguous. There often aren't obvious good guys and bad guys, so to speak. But to southernize my version of the story, I had to deal with themes that are common in southern literature. So I wrote about the burden of violence, racism, poverty, industrialization, and I have references that situate the novel in the South, things like uh, magnolia trees or, you know, tulips and different plants and 
that, you know, in the town square, there's Confederate statuary, as there would be in small southern towns. When I envisioned this town, I had in mind many different places, actually. I grew up in Marietta, Georgia, which is set on the backdrop of some some mountains, and I had that in mind. I also had Greenville, South Carolina in mind. I went to college at Furman University, and Furman University is situated with the beautiful Paris Mountain in the background. And I lived in West Virginia, in Morgantown, West Virginia, for three and a half years, and there are mountains there. And then in Alabama, I commute every day. I drive through small towns every day. And so the small town that I was constructing here has a lot to do with many of the small towns that I would just drive through and see shops and stores, and that would remind me of some visual imagery to include in the book. You know, it's interesting you mentioned magnolia trees because we do think of that as southern, but we have magnolia trees in Iowa. You would have them in Iowa too, but yeah, that, there's about, <laughs> that's exactly right. And there, it's funny because somebody was asking me um, to write an article about how I made a southern novel. What did I do to make this novel southern? And in doing that, I said, well, you know. To explain the uniqueness of Southerners and their literature would require an ethnographic (laughs) anthropological study that is beyond my competence. But what you can do is take things that um, at a certain level of generality are themes that befit any setting, family, community, race, poverty, language, cuisine, morality, religion change, a sense of place, the burden of history. Well, those themes are common to any genre, really, but it's the specifics within those generalities that make it Southern. So in isolation, a reference to a magnolia tree isn't going to signal Southern literature. But in the aggregate, when you start listing football fields, fishing poles, you start using the contraction y'all. You mentioned Truman Capote. You mentioned chrysanthemums. You mentioned small towns. Then in the aggregate, you do start signaling the southern genre. And in some ways, it's almost like you might not be able to explain what makes it southern, but you know it when you hear it. That's exactly right. The old Potter Stewart line, the Supreme <laughs> Court justice, when he was asked to define pornography, and he said, I, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> You're listening to Writer's Voices, and our guest this morning is Alan Mendenhall, author of A Glooming Piece This Morning. So I got to admit, as I was reading this, I really thought it was a memoir. Ah, interesting. (laughs) Yeah, I can see that because it is told by a first-person narrator named Cephas. Mm -hmm. And And, Cephas has a unique voice. And I, I just, I was feeling pretty, pretty bad for you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, a lot of people do, so that's okay. (laughs) For what, for what I thought you went through in your childhood. No, no, no. I, the, 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 story, the story is entirely fictional, but as with all writing, ideas don't spring out of a vacuum. You've seen and heard things that contribute to the narrative you're trying to construct. So there are elements of 
I think what it, did did George W. Bush use the term truthiness or something like that? <laughs> yeah. something, it was something <laughs> some kind of term like somebody said that that it was a sort of a. <laughs> a, a, a funny phrase, but uh, a funny term. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, there, there's, the, the, I guess, whatever that that term is, I think would apply to this this novel. There are elements of it that are certainly, um, well, I'll just put it as believable to make myself legally safe. Yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely believable. Of course, I I don't want to give away too much, but there the well, why don't you actually kind of lay out the plot so I'll know what what. Uh, what you don't want me to give away. I'll let, I'll let you set the boundaries. Well, sure. Yeah, I'm happy to do it. So um, the story is a look back novel. It's a coming of age novel. And the narrator is Cephas. And he retells the story of this forbidden love between Tommy and Sarah. And Tommy is intellectually disabled, I think is probably the politically correct term for what he is. And Sarah is sort of the darling of society, the person to whom all teachers and parents uh, look for inspiration. I, I know that sounds uh, grand, but she is um, she stands out and she comes down with a mysterious uh, a mysterious illness. And she and Tommy have an illicit relationship. We'll put it that way. And that's what gets them in trouble with the law. There is a prosecution, and maybe that's where I'll leave it without getting into the uh, the tragedy part of of the novel. We'll leave it with there is a trial. Um, much like To Kill a Mockingbird, I have stories where Cephas and his friends, um, Lump, Brett, and Michael, go through different um, ordeals, and they have different experiences. And it's just, you know, like Scout and Jim have different things that they're doing, but the story is set against the backdrop of this trial. The trial is really what drives the uh, the conclusion, the denouement, as they, <laughs> as they say. And that trial is uh, very Southern in, in, in many ways. And it does, of course, lead to tragedy. Yeah. Okay. So, so, um, Tommy is barely 18. That's correct. And and mentally much younger. And Sarah is 13 during correct. most of the events of the book. And the and Cephas is also about 13, 14 yes, he's, somewhere in there. He's yeah. The, yeah, that's correct. They're yeah. they're all young. And so the relationship between Sarah and Tommy implicates statutory rape laws. And statutory rape is, of course, uh, a strict liability offense, meaning that people can be convicted of it regardless of the mens rea element, which is the morally blameworthy part of it. So it's not a defense for uh, an attorney to say – an attorney cannot present the defense that, oh, my client is mentally disabled and was unable to form the requisite intent to satisfy that mens rea element of a crime. It doesn't matter what Tommy was or wasn't able to do. The question turns on whether he in fact did it or not. It's a purely factual analysis. And if the facts um, are sufficient to convince a jury of guilt, then the character is going to be 
convicted. Tommy will be uh, uh, convicted. Now, this is what, in fact, happened in that case that I told you about in law school. That's what the case was about. Ah. I can't remember how old the mentally uh, disabled person was in that case, but that was the philosophical problem at issue in the case was whether this person could be convicted of statutory rape under the law, which I think they were in Chicago. For some reason – or. or Maybe that's just because the author of that textbook was in Chicago, but for some reason, I think that case took place in Chicago. But at any rate, there was a statutory rape law, and that was the issue presented in that case. Okay, okay. So, yeah, it just – it's interesting to me also that you don't when, – when they go to trial, these the, – the, narrator and his friends aren't really part of the trial even though they sort of instigated the whole thing that's correct yeah, why did you choose true. to do it that way well i'm not sure i have a, a a great answer for you there monica i i chose i mean the the character lump really stands out and um he is a colorful character and i think in part, I wanted to show how important Sarah is to the community. They had she had to really upset these young male figures because she is sort of the object of the male gaze in this novel. Mm. And these young boys are more or less infatuated by her. And I knew I needed to get to this trial. Somehow I needed to get to this trial. And as I had mentioned earlier, I had started the novel with what were short stories or what with what was one too long short story. And I really needed that those early sections of the novel to introduce the characters, because there are a lot of characters for a short novel. So I needed to introduce Lump. I needed to introduce Brett. I needed to introduce Tommy. I needed to introduce Michael and Sarah. And at some point, Lump's personality was such that I realized he was perfect to be the person to mobilize the community into this agitative state, and that of course, it had to be him who facilitated the case. And the narrator has to be omniscient, more or less, has to be able to tell what happened. And so almost as a function of uh, utilitarianism, I had to make the narrator involved in it so that the narrator had the knowledge to convey what, in fact, happened in the situation. Possibly I could have written it so that Lump was the only character pushing mm. the trial, but I just thought it would be better to have the narrator involved so that he could describe the situation with firsthand knowledge. So one of the things that really um, got to me about the book was this – this sort of conflict between the innocence of children and how we try and protect that innocence, but sometimes in a way that causes damage, more damage than if we were just more frank, I think. And um, it made me think about, 
you know, because of all the book bannings and stuff that's going on now, which your book would probably oh, it would could be, be banned. banned. <laughs> yeah, it could and I would be okay with banning my book. I actually <laughs> don't think I would want my own children reading this book for uh, a few years. <laughs> but um, but I think sometimes like these boys, they really didn't understand sex. They didn't Correct. understand right and wrong in a in a lot of in a lot of ways, and um, and I, it made me think about farm kids who grow up with a much greater understanding of the biological aspects because the animals are doing it, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. And sometimes I think, why why do we try so hard to hide? Just the facts of life, yeah, and yeah. and from children, when they're there's they end up getting wrong ideas about it, and sometimes acting on the wrong ideas, and by protecting, trying to protect their innocence, we sometimes cause great harm. I think that's correct, and I think you're also bumping up against another theme of the novel which maybe not everyone would pick up on right away, but it is individualism versus collectivism. The, um, the town operates as a multitude. I think I use several different terms to refer to sort of uh, a herd mentality. The multitude, the crowd, the throng, the masses, the mob. I use several terms like that so that I'm portraying the town as if, it had some shared understanding as if it operated as a collective unit with some sort of homogenous agency, so to speak. And that's deliberate. And of course, the narrator is as believable as you want him to be. So looking back on his childhood, he is telling the story he wants to tell, and maybe the town was more complex than he lets on, mm -hmm. but he is conveying a child's understanding, how he remembers thinking of the town. And I'm sure the way I look at communities in which I was involved as a kid, in a naive way, even as an adult, I look back and I think about what it was like to go to church as a kid. And I think about all the families that were involved and how happy they looked and how innocent everybody looked. But I'm sure that there were a lot of problems. And, you know, I remember lots of families getting divorces and lots of things happening. But you sort of were, I wouldn't say blissfully unaware, but you weren't fully cognizant of the complexities and complications of human relationships at that stage in development. Right. And right. even now, I couldn't tell you what was going on in those people's personal lives that caused those relationships <laughs> to collapse. Right. But and now, there could have been bad things. And nowadays, in some ways, it's even worse because with social media where people are, are putting this idealized image of their lives up and everyone thinks everybody else's life is perfect and and they're the only ones that are not everybody. Actually, there's plenty of people who share share the dark, maybe overshare on social media too, and share too much of, of the things that are going on in their lives. But but you're right. It's it's nobody really knows what goes on behind closed doors. Everybody always thinks. I think that I think most people think that 
their family is weird and everybody else is matches what they see on TV. Yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> I think that's correct. And in fact, even in publishing this novel, I know that I'm sitting here publicizing it and talking about it on air, and I have done that other places, but I'm in Alabama and you know, a member of many different public communities in the state. And there are times when I'm a little bit bashful about the own novel and thinking like, what are, what is this person going to think when they read this novel? Or what is that person going to think when, when they read this novel? And I just have to <laughs> hope that really people with a sophisticated literary understanding are the ones reading the novel and that the people that, that probably wouldn't read a novel like this aren't going to read it, even if it's written by somebody they know. <laughs> so you're hope you're holding out for some people not reading your novel. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe maybe so. I, you know, I the, the other thing though that I've also realized is that people publicly put on a persona that doesn't necessarily match the internal <laughs> discernment. So oh, that there are yeah. people that on the when when they read the novel they will not be as judgmental as you may think they would be because they understand yes. the elements of, of humanity that are perennial that speak to timeless conditions. And they understand that humans are sexual beings and that these types of problems pop up and, era and by era <laughs> by era. It's the only way I could write a Greek tragedy or Romeo and Juliet in this new setting is because those types of stories speak to something that is, I won't say universal in the, in the human condition because that's too strong of a word, but I would say perennial. You know, there's yes, some yeah. version of these problems that will spring up always. Yeah. And sometimes it seems like the harder we try and deny that, the worse, it, the worse the way it presents itself. And I think you know, there was I there was some correct. you know you you see over and over and over again these people are held, who are held up as paragons of virtue and then they're actually doing pretty pretty horrible things. Pretty, you see it all the time. Sometimes horrible and sometimes just pretty racy things. You know. Well, that, yeah, <laughs> and you see it a lot with politicians. You see it a lot with pastors. And yes. they've got some yes. sort of secret life that's going on. Over and but over I, I and over see, again. Yeah, <laughs> I, you do. And, you know, I, it's it's interesting because I think that every generation struggles to define what a public life and a private life m means, you know, what those what the distinction, how to differentiate between the two. You think about, you know, someone like George Washington's advice and Washington seems like this magnanimous, larger than life figure. And um, of course he would have had all kinds of personal <laughs> struggles that we, we don't really know about because that's not the version right, of the man that right, we get in right. history books. Yeah. But um, you know, I, I have a feeling that all of us are living in a fishbowl in a way that, previous generations have not and i'm not sure we as as human beings as a species have really worked through the social media problem yet i think it's new i mean you think about when when gutenberg invented the printing press how radical that was and the the waves of violence that caused throughout europe and the protestant reformation and all kinds of things it set into motion and it was just a new technology and maybe social media 
is new to us and we have all this anxiety and we just don't yet know how to use it. The technology in itself isn't a bad thing, but we haven't adjusted yet. Just as though, you know, the printing press, that wasn't a bad thing. It ended up leading to widespread literacy and maybe social media will lead to some good that we can't foresee, but we're just not ready for it yet because as a species, we're still adjusting to this new medium of exchange. Yeah, and it's interesting that, like, if somebody is on their phone and on social media all day, we, we have no hesitation of calling that an addiction. But mm. when I was a kid and wanted to read 24 hours a day, nobody was concerned about me being addicted to books. Oh, and you think about it. Well, if, if, if you opened them to the dedication of my book, I dedicate the book to the novel. I said, I dedicate this work to the novel that pseudo-realist modern art form that engages innumerable minds in pensive private isolation, may she, may she survive. Because I'm actually concerned that the novel as a genre will not survive, mm -hmm. and at least not in, uh, in terms of previous popularity. Because the novel – I mean if you, if you take Don Quixote as the first novel, the introduction to the modern era – I mean these are grand statements, but people make them – the novel's not that old as a form of literature, and there was a, a long period when people talked about the novel the way we talk about television. Oh, don't you know? Remember when I was growing up, it was TV rots your brain. That's what people said. <laughs> TV rots your brain. Don't do it. Don't watch it. And now we have film studies classes. But um, there oh, was yeah, a time when I'm the novel was considered sure. trash. I of mean, course. That, that people dismissed the novel as being trash. And, you know, Dickens was writing in serialized form. I mean, people were just waiting for the next installment of whatever book it was before they read it. And and a lot of people dismissed that as, oh, this is just flight, a flight of fancy. This is what trivial people do to entertain themselves. But now we study novels as very important works. Isn't it funny how one era's popular culture becomes a future era's classic <laughs> and that is such a great statement. One of my mentors in, in, in life is uh, a man who was, is now deceased. He died a couple of years ago, and his name is Paul Cantor, and he was an English professor at the University of Virginia, a Shakespearean, and he wrote a lot about culture. And I mean his books almost boil down to that point you just made. He would write about popular fiction uh, – excuse me, popular, um, popular forms of artistic expression, including novels – and how they were received in their day. And then he'd write about like uh, Gilligan's Island or different TV shows now as if they were the future, you know, highbrow art forms or had <laughs> that potential. They were potential candidates for that, at least. I'm not sure about Gilligan's Island, but maybe, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> so, Alan, why don't you read a little bit from a glooming piece this morning? Sure. How long would you like me to go? Uh, about six, seven minutes. Okay. I'm happy to do it. I'll actually set a timer so I can keep myself honest here. Awesome. Let me tell you a story from my childhood, a tragedy worthy of ancient attic theater, a sordid account of illicit love and unfortunate loss of law and order, justice and mercy, life and death. Some 40 years later, I recall these sad events with the clarity and devotion with 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 which Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, faithful followers each, recounted their timeless message of hope, grace, and promise. Only my story is different, more ominous. Listen and hear my voice. Pay attention to what I have to say. 
store up my words for wisdom and instruction. I used to lick at, I used to stick out my tongue to lick my mashed potatoes, not as an eater, but as a cartographer. To prove my world was measurable, I'd slide my fat pink tongue along the steaming mush, bulldozing it into lumpy mountains along the corners of my plate and flattening it into a smooth valley somewhere in the middle. Eventually, I tongued the topography of Andalusia, my hometown in Magnolia County. Mom's hollering or smacking me with a napkin or spoon almost always disrupted this modest achievement. Despite her interruptions, I maintained the skill to actualize into small scale the enormous world I envisioned. The place now known as Andalusia was once named for the Etowah Indians whom the British and Spanish, on the pretext of trading, gradually and thoroughly dispossessed. Andalusia's first European settlers, all Christians, didn't record the Etowah name because, the story goes, it signified sun worship. They couldn't have foreseen the long stretch of highway that split the cotton fields and brought truckers and hookers and other unsavory characters to the rest stops and gas stations on the outskirts of Magnolia County, where hitchhikers gathered and poor black families lived in shacks and shanties, even though it was, for heaven's sake, the 1970s. Words like folks and yonder still circulated back then, and everyone was fixing to do something but never actually doing it. The class divide was sharp. It was declassé to speak like a redneck or a hick, though we all had strong accents and used strange colloquialisms. The aspirational and ashamed among us spoke as we imagined refined Southerners to have spoken a century ago, with Victorian vocabulary and musicality, a ridiculous mix of faux aristocratic inflection with theatrical measured enunciation. We didn't know many Yankees and couldn't bear the thought of them labeling us uneducated or ignorant. So we overcompensated, making speech into a differentiating form of recreation, a pretend pedigree. I sometimes wonder whether other small southern towns were anachronistic like ours, a simulacrum of feudal plantation society disconnected from the distant daily machinations of President Nixon, the political fallout from Roe v. Wade, the Kent State Massacre, the hostage crisis at the Munich Olympics, and whatever else occupied the news. Black folks were not, I'm sorry to say, part of my quotidian experience as a boy. They lived on the margins of town in isolated neighborhoods and attended different churches. They had their own restaurants and little leagues. I saw black fathers and mothers walking to and from work but did not interact with them. The law, mind you, no longer permitted segregation, which was accomplished instead through habits and practices that amounted to law in those days. Left to their own preferences, the blacks and whites at that time and place regarded each other with polite and tactical distance avoiding at all costs the fraught history that had hardened the hearts of their mothers, fathers, grandfathers, and grandmothers. We wanted to understand each other, perhaps forgive each other, but didn't know how and wouldn't risk the effort. We favored an imperfect peace over disruptive improvement when it came to race relations. Few written records survived Andalusia's infancy. The first settlers were either illiterate or didn't safeguard information. Maybe they felt no need to document their existence or connect with their posterity. Whatever the reason for their interminable silence, they left behind no information about Andalusia's early years. Legend held that an old blind man, the Oracle in overalls, wandered Magnolia County in the 1920s and prophesied that Andalusia would perish if a local virgin murdered her one true love. He was found dead in a field with coins over his eyes, possibly the victim of foul play. I lived in the valley, the nucleus of the county. Some 30 miles east of my house were the homogenous buildings of the gray and graying city. At night, these lit up like a fluorescent forest. From town, on a clear evening, 
You could see the distant glow of these colossal structures as if they were teeny candles illuminating the yawning divide between urban and rural, cosmopolitan and country. I never set foot in these towers, but heard that they afforded a full view of Andalusia. I pictured businessmen and elegant women gathered on the rooftops and upper floors, looking down on me and my house all those miles away with disdain and aloofness. Many were the twilights when, alone and brooding, I would watch the sun set behind that inadvertent sum of architectural ambition, the gray and gray in city. During these moments of solitude, I learned that day is day and night is night, and that distinction between the two can be beautifully ambiguous. I also developed a notion that the vital forces of the universe were not the result of human choice, but simply the given state of things. A city could spring up, unwieldy and without design, to no one's fault or credit. Sure, there were engineers and builders and countless workers, but no individual purpose could explain the disorienting energy of the mighty metropolis with its incomprehensible multitudes. And I think I'll leave it there. Thank you. And that was Alan Mendenhall reading from the beginning, the opening of a glooming piece this morning. There's a little bit of foreshadowing in there that I didn't pick up the first time I read it. <laughs> uh, that's right. That was added late. Ah, okay. Okay. Yep. That makes sense. That makes sense. There's, you know, in, in some ways it's, it's seems like, like this, this novel is a, a treatise on the, on binary, on the binary. You've got mm. rural and urban, you've got North, South, you've got male, female, you've got, um, Rich, poor. <laughs> Monica, you are exactly right. And that is exactly what I was trying to do because I think what, what happens as a child is you think in binaries. And everything is put into a category, good or bad, right or wrong, these types of things. And part of the process of becoming an adult is learning to hold intention irreconcilable ideas, being able to suspend judgment and look at things not as if you have to put them into boxes, but as if you can hold them into two different boxes or you can hold two different ideas that are incompatible maybe. You can think certain things without knowing if they're right or wrong. There are all kinds of really difficult you know, global events occurring out there in the world. And yeah. <laughs> I don't know what to make of them. I, and I think it's okay to say, I don't understand this. This is beyond my comprehension. I don't have enough knowledge of these situations. I can see badness and I can see goodness and I can see them both on both sides of different. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about right now. <laughs> part of what be, is what is part of what is, I think the process of, thinking like a sophisticated adult, yeah. not feeling as though you have to choose sides on everything, but just suspending judgment and being able to analyze things as sort of a disaffiliated observer. Exactly. Yeah. Why do, why do we feel like we have to take a side on everything? I really think <laughs> that a lot of it has to do with our longing for childhood. I really do. I think we all uh, – I, I, I say this about, about men in particular, is that young boys spend their entire boyhood 
wanting to become men. And then having become a man, they spend their entire <laughs> manhood wanting to be a boy again. And I've said that many times. And I think there is sort of a longing for childhood for those who had good or decent childhoods. Not everyone has had a good right. childhood. Yeah. Not everyone wants to go back to, to, to that. But many people do. And there's something about everything being neat and tidy and simple as a child, or at least the way we recollect childhood. We forget a lot of the hard parts of childhood because the scale of our problems is different as an adult. And our responsibility is so much greater. And there's so many other lives affected when we fail in our responsibilities. But we forget that as a child, losing that toy is as traumatic to you at that moment as the death of a friend may be as an adult. But you as a child are unable to contextualize that experience because you haven't learned enough yet. You haven't been through enough yet. And so by the time we really start to figure things out, I think we're really kind of done here on Earth. <laughs> By the time we really gain that wisdom, it's almost too late it's, for us. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're saying. You know, when I think of my childhood, I, I think I mostly was lonely most of the time, mm. even though I was part of a big family. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, that's interesting. I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm very extroverted as an adult, but wasn't always that way as a child. But even as an extrovert, I can work a room, which is something I have to do for my job. You know, I have to fundraise. I have to do other things like that. And I can work a room and be in the middle of a gigantic crowd and feel alone. And I think, you know, people people struggle with, with loneliness and, um, and sadness, but I don't think those are necessarily bad things. I actually think the ideal state for a human being is melancholy because happiness <laughs> can lead you to be delusional, you know, and excitement and people chase. I, I really dislike how our culture is always chasing after happiness, 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 because happiness is not a constant. Aristotle had this term eudaimonia, and I love it because it refers to sort of a general state of flourishing or contentment. It's not a constant. You can't be happy all the time. If you were, there would be no such thing as happiness. There can be no happiness without sadness. you got to have a little rain sometime. <laughs> you have to have a rain. Otherwise, it's not happiness. Yeah. And so I think that's one reason why so many people are addicted to different pills and why we are obsessed with therapy. Not that therapy is a bad thing. I don't think it is at all. But I think, you know, I think that our culture is so obsessed with happiness without saying, you know what, sadness is okay. And it's not just okay, but it's good. Well, let's go back to this idea that melancholy is the ideal state. Yeah. Because that is something that that um, definitely your book, A Glooming Peace, this morning, to me, inspired melancholy. And, mm. <laughs> and I felt, particularly towards the end, which um, – you know, you don't you don't sort of end with the trial or the results of the trial. You you take it a little further, and and uh, Cephas, the main character, is talking about his mother, and I felt, you know, and it was interesting to me that that because I didn't get that about her earlier, mm. the things that he's saying, and and about her and about his 
home situation. And it was interesting to me that you sort of tacked that on later, but it gave a much greater understanding of of why Cephas saw things the way he did. But also there's just there's actually um, this line right at the very last couple of pages where you wrote it's it's true and profoundly sad that no one remembers former generations. Tommy and Sarah will be forgotten. The great judges and halls of justice, attorneys and courthouses, towns great and small, quaint and profound, controversies ordinary and extreme, the same fate overtakes them all. Um, now I'm getting to an age where, uh, <laughs> where I'm, I'm, you know, starting to look, there's much more of my life behind me than ahead of me, unless I live to be a miraculously old age. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, um, and I have a lot of family history on my mother's side in particular. My grandmother kept a lot of things. My mother kept a lot of things. There's, so I have a lot of knowledge about um, the family on, like I said, particularly on my mother's side of the, of the, of the, of the family. And, and it just made me think about how, like, and my grandfather, my, excuse me, my great grandfather was a judge in Iowa. And he, my, I think my great, or was it, maybe it was great, great grandfather. And he, we have an article uh, that was in the newspaper during his life where he was referred to as the only honest judge in Iowa. And, um, and his wife ran a station on the Underground Railroad. And um, so there's, so, and I, we've got letters and we've got documents. And so I kind, I feel like they're not completely forgotten. And yet their lives that were so vital important and important are so I, I, minor now. I, I, so I, I have said this in, in other interviews. There's a television program that I go on uh, once a month. And I've said this multiple times on that program. But the tendency among people who have that politician personality is to pursue greatness and to cultivate an aura and a lot of these politicians don't realize that the attention they get is because of the office and sometimes they retire from the office and now the phone's not ringing off the hook now people aren't waiting in the door and they really struggle with that and i tell my friends who want to get into politics and i discourage that <laughs> i don't really think anybody should get into politics these days are just just terrible even though you know it, it can be a guilty pleasure it's like eating a snickers bar when you should be eating your vegetables but um, i tell a lot of people that when that they want to get into politics i say look if if it's greatness you're pursuing answer some of these questions who was the state senator uh, from such and such district in Connecticut in 1920. Oh, you can't name it. Oh, who 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 was the U.S. senator from that state in 1920? Oh, you can't name him. What about who was the president in 1920? Do you even know yeah. that? I mean, who are, are the vice president or the secretary of state or you know start naming? And the names are gone, and you don't really care. And they were so important in that era, and no one no one really cares but you know anymore. who we do remember but you know what we do we read william faulkner exactly that was robert frost that's who we remember that's exactly right 
And so, you know, I tell stuff like this to students all the time because students, they always want to go change the world. And I say, you know what? There's probably a, I admire that that's what you want to do. I, I think that's great. But there are ways of doing it that are probably different from what you're thinking. I mean, they all want to be influencers, are they? You know, like, and are they all want to be leaders? Everyone wants to be a leader now. And I think, well, I mean, there's no such thing as leadership without followers. The if you you can't have all leaders. Yeah. And there are different contexts in which we are all leaders or all followers. You know, sometimes I'm a leader in certain contexts. For example, I'm an administrator in a university, and that means by basically definition, I am a leader. But there are many other places in which I'm a follower, and that's okay. I mean, I, you know, yeah. it's, everything's contextual or situational. Um, but I think with students in particular, because I, I'm in this position where I work with young people all the time, I I, I try to encourage them to you know, think about if legacy is really what they're worried about, think about maybe other courses, uh, career options than the ones that they that spring to mind, obviously, because they all want to get into politics or they all want to be a CEO and everyone wants to be an entrepreneur now. <laughs> I can tell you, the entrepreneurs are entrepreneurs because there are only a few of them. Most people fail. Yeah. And actually, yeah. I, the other thing I like to tell them is that Failure is necessary for success. You got to fail a lot before things work out, and you learn more from that failure than you do from the success. Yeah, I am an entrepreneur. Mm. Um, I'm actually there was a recent article in our local paper calling me Fairfield serial entrepreneur, and, <laughs> and I have been and very successful. That's not C E R. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> and I and um, and but it's hard. It is hard. And and both of my kids grew up seeing what I went through, and sort of not wanting to do that mm. <laughs> because of yeah. It's it's you risk a lot. And sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. And yeah, I like I said, I've been very fortunate. I have a, a company, the company that I co-founded, you know, has well over 100 employees in the U.S. Also, we have employees in Mexico, China, Hong Kong. And, wow. you know, we're it's a manufacturing and consumer product design company. And oh, wow. yeah, and I, you probably have seen products that that we've made, and I probably <laughs> you probably have, and um, but it's it's <laughs> I don't know I don't know if I'd advise anybody to do it. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, it's some people are risk averse. It, it, it sort yeah. of depends on your risk tolerance. You have and to some be able people, to sleep at night no matter what's do. going on. And mm -hmm. yeah, I've yeah, I've never lost sleep over um, over the risks that I've taken. Well, I think that's a great barometer <laughs> now that you mention it is being able to sleep at night. And yeah, yeah. how much stress can you tolerate? If you can sleep at night, then you're okay. Right. I think that's exactly. a great barometer. Exactly. So um, we're almost out of time. And just question more. Are there more novels coming from you, Alan? Well, I, I have thought about Andalusia being my Yaknapatovna, you know, my little town that I'm going to revisit and maybe develop a story out of another character. And I did, of all things, read another case about two years ago, <laughs> and I thought, ah, 
there could be a story coming out of this case. But I don't want to make Andalusia look like it's some homicidal crazy place. <laughs> but then again, maybe southern towns kind of are. You well, know, if you go look at these southern towns, they they got some crazy history. Well, I've got to say the British small towns are really crazy too. I, my mother and I watch Midsummer Murders mystery mm, series, and yeah. it's like there's a murder happening in these little tiny towns in the middle of nowhere every week. It's like I'm surprised there's yeah. anybody left. <laughs> <laughs> now, you did mention, um, or I, I want to say, obviously, there's similarities between your book and um, To Kill a Mockingbird, you know, just that it's focused around this trial and sort of an injustice, small southern town, father, a lawyer, a lot of differences, too. But how how much were you holding that in mind as you were writing? Um, consciously, not much. Uh, only structurally was I really trying to resemble that novel in the sense that I wanted to tell a bunch of stories involving these kids, and then I wanted to have a, a big important case sort of bookend at the at the end of the at the, at the novel. But I will say, To Kill a Mockingbird is such a part of me as a human being because my grandfather grew up in Monroeville with Harper Lee. He called her Nell, oh. and Truman Capote, and just has story after story had he passed away over a decade ago but had story after story after story about his experiences with Nell and what that was like growing up with her and how uh, Monroeville is represented within To Kill a Mockingbird and we could do a whole show on that <laughs> topic but it was, you know, I, I can't even tell you how many times I used to read that novel every year. Oh wow! And so I'm sure, in ways that I don't fully understand, the novel was back there, mm. doing things that I wasn't even conscious I was doing. Wow. Well, thank you so much for joining us again, Alan. Um, I think 2017 was the last time you were with us, and hopefully we won't wow. wait so long till the next time. A glooming piece this morning is the title of the book. Uh, we always end with the quote, and since we were talking about Flannery O'Connor, I thought this one worked well. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you odd. Love it. Perfect. <laughs> so thank you, and see you all next week on Writer's Voices. <laughs>